This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anok, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. The U.S. aquarium fish industry is centered in Florida and has a rich tradition of fish farming families. My guest today, Jason Diaz, has been working in his family's business since age 12. Jason is president of 5D Tropical Incorporated, an aquarium fish production and import facility based in Plant City. 5D produces hundreds of thousands of aquarium fish weekly, comprised of over 60 species and varieties of fish, with the spectacularly colored glowfish among their most popular. 5D also imports fish from all over the globe. So what's it like growing up in an aquaculture industry when your parents were also your bosses and where your brother and sister worked too? Join us as Jason gives us his unique perspective on life in the industry. We'll be right back after these messages. It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Jason Diaz, president of 5D Tropical Incorporated, based in Plant City, Florida. Hey, Jason. Thanks again for talking with us today. Hi, Roy. How are you doing? Good, good. So you've been in the industry for a really long time. I always like to start these discussions with kind of getting a little bit of uh, feedback on your uh, early years and how you sort of first got into fish. So when and how did you first get involved with fish? Right. No, um, thinking back, actually, it goes way back. I was around 12 years old and always had, uh, you know, an interest because, of, gro- of course, growing up in the, uh, with my dad being a producer of tropical fish, I had an interest in the hobby and, and the interest in the fish. But uh, I was y- as young as 12 years old, and I remember it was, a, it was a summertime and I needed to make a little bit of money, so I asked my dad, I approached my dad and, to see if uh, I could start working at the farm. And that's really when it started. You know, we basically being young and naive, you really don't know what's going on. So I, I definitely didn't actually work with the fish, but I did. I, some of the jobs that I that I had was cleaning a lot of the aquariums, putting spawning media in the tanks, packing boxes for the fish. So some of these odd jobs. But as a kid, you really remember these things, and as well as my brother was uh, along with me. And there was, you know. The times were good back then. You're a little bit horse playing around, but uh, it was very, it was very exciting. So, uh, did your dad shaft you, or did he give you a pretty good rate? <laughs> no, I was making pretty much nothing. Uh, <laughs> I think it was really was around seventy five cents an hour, so uh, it was it was pretty low. But you know, I, I definitely learned a lot. 
that's good. So did you end up having aquariums at home with your, your family or did you guys have too many fish on the farm to, to bother with one? Believe it or not, we did not have one actually in the living room. I had, uh, I had a, a small 10-gallon aquarium in, my, in our bedroom. And we always had either a reptile or fish. And the first, the first tank I know uh, we had were a little 10-gallon with some blind cave tetras and some pink, uh, pink kissers. Actually, that was one of my favorite fish that I had when I was a kid. So I just uh, would always keep that, that tank in the room, and you know we would change it around. If I see something new coming through the farm or something that I really liked, I'd pull that one fish out and put another one in it. So we pretty much had a small aquarium. But, you know, living uh, right here on the same property, you had all so many different varieties and so many tanks that it's not something we, we really needed in our house at that time. So you mentioned some of the early jobs you had when you were about 12. When you kind of got a little bit more into it and started actually working with a fish, you know, how old were you and what were some of the uh, memories from all of that? Well, it, it would go, again, I started when I was 12, but I consistently worked um, after school. Uh, there was a lot of jobs that we would do you know, on the weekends, especially before we'd uh, ever be able to go play with our friends. So there was a lot of work required of us, even at an early age. So it really didn't set in, Roy, until I was probably in my late teens, 18 years old, is when then uh, you know, I kind of had an idea how the businesses run and, and the, day, you know, the ins and outs of the of the daily work, uh, it was quite, you know, it was quite involving. And, um, you know, at that point, and that, you know, we're going back into the 80s and looking back, I, I, as much as my father and mother achieved as, as far as business-wise, uh, I was really inspired by that. And we, you know, we would do so much in, involved, but there was so much other part of the business that we didn't know. And, you know, I wanted to be a part of that. So, Going through high school, I invested more and more time and picked up just a lot of the, uh, you know, the on-hand uh, learning of how to raise tropical fish. So I think it was about that time, my late teens, I knew it. Who all works at 5D that, that's in the family? Well, there was five of us. I, it was my father, obviously, Joe Diaz is the founder. My mother worked alongside Anita Diaz. And then I have my two siblings, my uh, brother Damon and my sister Stacy. Now, back in the 80s and 90s, it was all five of us here, and that's pretty much how the name came 5D Tropical. If I go back a little bit, my uh, actually, my dad's first farm was in East Tampa, and it was a small little five-acre farm, and that actually was called Peninsula. So once we all were in the business, we changed the company name to 5D Tropical. And uh, many years, I think, until the early 2000s, and then my mom retired, but Basically, up till 2009, it was four of us running the business, you know, learning and uh, working well together. So your first business logo was a Plecostomus, you know, a sucker mouth catfish. Can you tell us a little bit about the story of the Pleco and how that impacted your company? Yeah, that's the, uh, how can I say it, that's the fish that put uh, 5D on the map. You know, my father was basically what I'd like to say is the king of breeding these fish. He, uh, he made, he had so many brooder Plecostomus and he, and he really learned how and developed how to reproduce these on a commercial level. You know, Pocosmus were needed in pretty much every aquarium, and it's still today one of the top sellers, uh, basically cleaning the tanks, cleaning the algae. We would stock many, many ponds, 20-plus thousand fish out of, out of these ponds of a two-inch size uh, Pocosmus, and we would have holding vat after holding vat of years, and that, that's how that pretty much became, you know, uh, 5D was known for, that, that Pocosmus, and that's how I actually got on our logo. 
I guess briefly, maybe just you don't have to go into real detail, but tell people who don't know how these guys actually breed or spawn. Like, so what does a pico do once you throw it in your pond? Right. We would uh, most of our ponds on average are around twenty thousand gallons of water. They can run from four to six feet deep, and what's required is pretty much you need a you need a bank that's somewhat angled that they're able to dig. Costumes will just not spawn on a on a false bottom or a sand bottom. What they'll do is they'll actually barrel in the side of the, the, the pond and they'll build they'll dig a cave and it can go back as far as two feet, some even three feet in depth. And they'll go in there and they'll actually lay their uh, their ball of eggs. And these eggs could have anywhere to three to five thousand eggs in a ball and they'll and the um, the fish will actually sit there and fan it and to move and circulate that water and they'll actually hatch in that that cave and then they'll swim out so when you have these breeders in the ponds you have multiple many different caves all around the bank side and this is how you're able to pretty much do it on a commercial level as far as production wise and about how long does it take them to get to maybe two inch size i know it probably varies depending on time of year and temperature the average right it would take um i mean especially at the density we're stocking it could take up to six months to get up a two inch size and uh usually pretty much what we did for the, because the customers are sold in so many different sizes, anywhere from an inch and a half all the way up to eight inches. As once they get up to a two inch or an inch and a half or two inch size, we'll start thinning the ponds out, and we'll separate so many for a three inch, a four inch, and, a, and on and uh, so on, and uh, lighten the load. So, because it can take it can take up to six months to get up to inch and a half, two inch, and uh, requiring you know they're pretty they're once you get up threes and, and fours, it's going to take a, it's going to definitely take more time. So tell us a little bit more about 5D and in terms of you know numbers of tanks and ponds and just to kind of give the listeners an idea of the size of your facility. Well, going back uh, in the 80s, we actually started one farm. We had one location here in Plant City. It was it was a five acre farm and it was set up. It was actually working with the other farm in East Tampa. So we we had two facilities, but we knew that this one in Tampa was gonna we we're gonna close it and we're gonna move everything to the the Plant City facility. So it was five acres. As I can remember, I think it was around 30 or 40 ponds that were production ponds. We had one little um, holding facility there. So it was a small operation, but we found this this uh, good area, this good location in rural kind of Plant City area that was surrounded by a lot of land. And we knew hopefully we can just add as we as, as the company grew, we'd kind of pick up different tracks. So we started with a five, and the next thing I know, we bought the property to the the west of us, which was 15 acres, and we bought another five, and before you know it, we're up to 55 acres at this facility. Now, this is our main facility. It has, this is where pretty much everything is done. We have our sales office here. We have uh, four breeding facilities here. We have all our holding rooms here, and it, it houses 365 ponds. It also has basically every all the packing of the fish come out of this facility. Now, we've got pretty much on the system-wise, majority of our, our facility is on research systems. So we're running 21 different uh, research systems that have about 17,000 gallons per system. And, you know, breeding facility could run, we have 6,000 three-gallon spawning tanks. We have 250 22-gallons. So it varies all over the place depending on what is in each facility. And we try to do majority of the breeding at this farm. It's uh, easier for us to control. And uh, like I said, we do have four facilities and producing about a half a million babies. So this facility has been the base of everything. Uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s, we expanded base uh, 90 miles south of us, which is Arcadia, Florida. 
this is actually our largest facility. It's up to uh, 180 acres. I think it's around 650 ponds, all averaging around 20,000 gallons of water. That facility has very few greenhouses. It's got one holding room. But other than that, all the production is done here at the 5D at the main facility in Plant City and transported to the Arcadia farm. We do all the growing of our, our fry in the ponds, and then once they're up to marketable size, we transport them back. So we're running back and forth between these two farms five days a week. A lot of the fish, we do separate our fish as far as what we breed, uh, mainly at the Plant City facility. It's barbs, tetras, garamis. We do glowfish. We do um, sharks. And then in the Arcadia facility, do more live bears, more pond uh, uh, spawners with South American cichlids. We do Central American uh, cichlids down there. We do um, a lot of feeder fish at that facility. So we kind of break it up on how much need is involved as far as production, where fish goes where. And our third facility is, is out of the country. It's in Costa Rica. We purchased that one about eight years ago. And the reason we went to Costa Rica because of the climate. We, uh, we felt that we could have all-year production. We wouldn't have the change in temperature as we do here in Florida. So the, the main goal was to go into Costa Rica, buy uh, some land, and start digging some ponds. And we are basically producing at that facility. We do live bears. We're doing guppies, but the main, and the main fish is cichlids. We do a lot of the, the pasudos and uh, a lot of different haps. And most of those fish are, are um, in uh, pond production. And also we have building production down there. Now, we do receive one shipment a week from that farm. And uh, we, we receive it into Miami. And then we transport it back here. So all three facilities all end up at the main facility in Plant City. So you're... Um obviously going through a lot of fish. Now, do you work with other farms for your supply to get to your wholesalers as well? Yeah, we ch- I definitely try to support Florida fish. That, to me, is, is, uh, is very important, Roy. You know, we import a lot of fish, but the first, uh, the first thing I look at is what's available. And there's a lot of good, strong companies that's been around a long time. And when what makes a strong company is a company that's able to produce a good quality fish consistently. And believe it or not, sometimes that's hard to find. But there's many here in Central Florida that has worked really hard, and we support them, and they support us. So it's a good team. Uh, you know, we would rather market a Florida fish than an import uh, for many reasons. Uh, you know, just quality is number one. When you have fish that are coming straight out of out of Florida, and we're able to ship to, if it's up north in the northeast or wherever it's going, we feel obviously more confident in the product. It's the, uh, you know, the able to be able to know that. The consistency is there. You have that communication with a local farmer uh, versus imports. When you're importing fish, you're dealing with so many variables. You're dealing with freight costs changing weekly. You're dealing with uh, the communication factor. If it's if it's out of Asia, if it's out of Central America, South America, Africa, it's some of these things are you know very very time consuming and difficult and challenging. And uh, so, I hope to continue to grow with. Uh, with Florida fish and support the farmers and, and get our, you know, our industry uh, stronger. So let's talk about some of the fish a little more closely. Uh, can you walk our listeners through maybe a day in the life of some of these that you breed and raise, maybe starting with a, a tiger barb? Yeah, tiger barb goes back a long ways. That is still one of the most popular fish in the trade. It's one of our top sellers. We produce many, many tiger barbs. We have, I think, an allocation. All our fish that we have, we, alloc- we have allocations. So what I mean by that is we ac- actually allocate how many ponds per fish. So we find that out by basically running the numbers per year. So we'll know if we are selling this many tiger bars, we're going to have to allocate this many ponds. 
Uh, just to give you an example, this year on allocation, we have tiger barbs. Uh, there's 40 ponds allocated for that. Each pond is stocked with around 25,000. So at all times, I'm running with basically a million fish on hand. Now, that doesn't mean a million fish are sellable, but it's all the way from the larvae stage all the way to marketable size. So they're consistently rolling through. A tiger bar will usually take, depending on the time of year, in the spring to summer, we're looking to turn these ponds over basically in four to five months. We're harvesting those fish. In the winter, it takes a little longer. But um, it's been a, a strong fish for the industry. It's uh, pretty simple to breed. You know, you're pair spawning these fish. You just have a, a, a little mop or a brush or a, spawning, uh, a Spanish moss, a spawning media. You pair them up in a, in a small aquarium and you're going to get pretty good egg production out of those. We usually run every week these fish, and, I, and on average about 2,000 pairs we set up. And those 2,000 pairs you know, can give us four ponds at 25,000 babies, depending on how good the breeders are and the age of the breeders. So that sounds like a lot of work. It sounds like a lot of work, but we have good employees on staff, and as you, you, know, you do this, it's so re- repetitive, things really run smooth. Now, how do uh, tiger barbs differ in their breeding from blue garamis and zebra danios? Right. Well, tiger barbs, again, they, they're pair spawners. Uh, the danios, zebra danios, and some of the other danios, if it's uh, leopard danio, we gang spawn these. So we'll actually have a much larger aquarium. Instead of using a three-gallon spawning tank, we'll have a 20-gallon spawning tank, and we use false bottoms because danios will pretty much eat their eggs. So you'll lose a lot of that egg production overnight. So we put a false bottom on our 20-gallon uh, aquariums, and we'll put up to 250 breeders in one aquarium. And overnight, uh, we'll play with a photo period, and they'll release their eggs, uh, male fertilize the eggs. The next day, we'll come and we'll pull the breeders out. And then the eggs will actually hatch. They'll develop, hatch, and the fry will we'll wait till the fry are actually uh, free-swimming. And then once they're free-swimming, which would, depending on the time again, five to seven days, and then we'll stock them out to the pond. Now, garamis a little different. Garamis are pair spawned, but uh, garamis, they basically put a bubble nest. So uh, as far as a substrate, we use like a little float on the surface of the tank, and they'll make a bubble nest up there, and that's pretty much where they lay their eggs. So you would actually, once you see that nest and you see that you have eggs, you'll go ahead and the next day you'll also pull those breeders out. So if you leave the breeders in, what happens? They'll eat their eggs. Okay, okay. And I, I know that, I guess the males get pretty aggressive too, don't they, sometimes? Yeah, sometimes, especially the gold garamis, they're very aggressive. Uh, the males are extremely aggressive, and you could have loss. That's why we try to limit to basically pairing them up only for one day. Well, I have definitely a lot more questions for you, but let's take a short break, and we'll continue our discussion with Jason Diaz of 5D Tropical Incorporated after these messages from our sponsors. I'm Dana Humphrey, the founder of Whitegate PR. We have been specializing in PR and marketing in the pet industry for over 10 years. If you have a pet product or service you would like to promote, give us a call. We can help create awareness for your brand on TV, radio, magazines, newspapers, and blogs. Feel free to reach me directly at 619-414-9307 or learn more on our website at whitegatepr.com or follow us on Facebook. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back, 
and continuing our conversation with my guest, Jason Diaz of 5D Tropical Incorporated. Well, Jay, we talked a little bit about some of the more specifics regarding uh, breeding some of these fish. Now, I know you also do some other types of breeding with some of the fish that take a little bit more work. For example, the rainbow sharks and iridescent sharks. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with these fish, which of course aren't real sharks, they're uh, just cull sharks, can you talk about their breeding a little bit? Sure, right. These, uh, these fish are definitely more difficult. There has been reports of, of spawning in, in aquariums, home aquariums. I think it's, uh, I think it's been uh, very minimal uh, for commercial production, and that's pretty much what we're after. Uh, we have to look at a particular fish, identify how we're going to be able to do this, and can we actually do it on a, on a commercial level. Now, the sharks have um, been, you know, basically been spawned in Florida for many years now. I think it's been over 10 years on a commercial production. Now, these fish here require hormone injections, and we use hormones basically to, to induce the spawning. So we'll inject the, the male and the female, and depending on the fish, if it's a rainbow shark, it's usually you're going to do one injection, and then after six to eight hours, you'll come back and you'll check the fish, and usually the female's ready as well as the male, and then we're able to collect those eggs. Uh, if you're looking at another fish that we induce spawning, by hormones would be the iridescent shark. Now you've got two different size fish. A rainbow shark, adult size can be 35 to 40 grams, 50, 45 grams. An iridescent shark can get up to 22 pounds. A rainbow shark could have three to 5,000 eggs. An iridescent shark can have up to a million eggs. Different fish, same concept. Uh, it works really well. It's uh, you know, a hormone that's, uh, that's um, used uh, and approved for aquatic use. And it helps get us to be able to breed these fish at a commercial level. Both of these fish you're talking about are definitely high-volume fish in the trade as well. But depending on the type of fish you're using, sometimes hormones are definitely needed. So after you spawn them, maybe just to kind of go in a, just because I know some of our listeners probably have no idea. So when you spawn them, what are you actually doing and what do you do with the eggs and sperm? Right. After basically what you do is after you inject the female and it's usually the females what you're watching is that you're waiting for her to basically ovulate. Once you see that the female is ready, we'll manually actually strip the eggs from the fish. You know, you use a, uh, basically a little massage technique and you're stripping the fish of the eggs. It doesn't harm the fish at all and it's basically pushing the eggs out into and we pretty much catch them in a little bowl. So once those eggs are stripped out of the female, you put the female back in the aquarium, you'll get the male and you'll do the same thing. You'll basically massage the male, and you're looking for the milk, the sperm. And then you'll, the sperm will be on the eggs, and you're, you'll sit there, and you'll activate it by adding water. And there's just a, We use different techniques, but we use feathers, just something that you don't want to damage the eggs. And we'll circulate it around for a few minutes. And then once that process is done, you're actually putting the eggs into a hatching jar. A hatching jar is set up. It's usually about a couple gallons of water, and all it does is it pumps water to the bottom to keep these eggs fluidized. So they're always in motion. They're turning like they would be on a river bottom. And usually if you have good eggs, you'll get anywhere from 80 to almost 100% hatch. So it sounds sounds like a lot of work, but you end up getting you know really nice numbers and, and a lot more consistency probably when you're doing them. Correct, definitely so. So you mentioned, and we talked about zebra danios. Now, obviously, there's a, another kind of variant on the zebra danios that you have been involved with over the past several years on the, the glowfish. Can you give us a little bit of info on how you first became involved with breeding glowfish? Yeah, glowfish is, is definitely a hot topic now. It started all back, as I recall, back in 2003. It's, uh, I remember because 
Alan Blake, he's basically this, uh, he runs and the CEO of Yorktown Technologies, and they actually own the rights of this transgenic fish. Well, he approached us, and I remember coming into the office, and uh, he had this fish in the bag, and it was it was a reddish-looking danio, and it, it definitely caught my eye. And uh, he wanted to see it, you know, we wanted to talk to see if it had market value and could this, you know, be bred on a commercial level. So it definitely caught my interest because, uh, you know, color sells in our industry. That's what it's about. So it started back in 2003, and we went through a lot of, a lot of, there was a lot of problems at the beginning trying to get this, this fish up to market size and get the numbers up to market and get there's, get an interest in the fish. But uh, it really went well, and it's it's grown to you know, unbelievable interest now. I mean, we're we're now launching from the one line in 03. We're now up to six lines right now on the market. It's done very well. It it breeds a lot of interest into our hobby. The color is extremely uh, vibrant, and uh, I think it's just uh, there's no ceiling on this fish. What's the latest line that you guys just put out? We just launched our first Tetra. The first five lines were all Danios. So we had basically red orange, green, purple, and blue. We just launched our first Tetra, which is a green Tetra. It's an unbelievable color. You should see it in stores already. And uh, to me, it's my favorite. It's got, um, the eyes are actually, has a little tint of green. Throughout the body, it's green. The finish is green. It's unbelievable under under uh, an actinic light or even white light. It doesn't matter. It expresses itself so well. And uh, it's it, the interest has came back. Nothing but positive comments have really came back from since we launched this fish. Oh, that's great. And uh, yeah, I know uh, you guys are working with the company and, and have a lot more coming down the pike, I assume, right? Right. We are basically, there's two companies that's licensed to produce these fish. It's 5D Tropical and Seagrass Farms. And we're the only two licensees of, of this product. And uh, we have been consistently trying to keep up with the demand. It's been over so overwhelming that we had to change, you know, a lot of the operations and a lot of the things that we do to be able to, to meet this demand. And uh, it's been great. I'm, we're really excited about these fish. Now, in addition to all the work you and your family and, and everyone that works there has to do with farming and the production side, I know you also import fish. Where are you getting your imported fish from and what are some of the different varieties that you guys are importing? Yeah, I mentioned in the beginning that we still, you know, what comes first is production for us. We uh, raised 62 different varieties of fish. We're constantly changing what we're going to breed next, depending on what moves, what doesn't move, what's new, what's exciting, and where we want to go. We, we definitely look at that as our number one. That's our backbone of our company. But we also import fish. We've been importing fish for a lot of years. Uh, it brings us the, it gives us the, the capabilities of, of putting out a full list basically bringing, you know, everything from any part of the world right through our company. And a lot of the countries that we do bring, we bring in, it's, it's every week. We can bring in 16 to 18 different countries a week. South America, we bring in every week. Colombia, Peru, Brazil, Guyana, Ecuador. We bring uh, out of Costa Rica every week. Uh, we bring out of, um, you know, the Caribbean, Trinidad, Haiti, Africa, out of Nigeria, Asia every week, Thailand, Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, Taiwan, China and uh, just started Vietnam. So depending on the volume of what comes out of each country, but majority of these countries do come into our facility every week. We bring them through either L.A., we bring them in through Miami or through Atlanta. But the difference with our company, Roy, is that everything that is brought into, into 5D is quarantined. Nothing is brought in 
transshipped and sent back out. So we would actually bring these fish in. A lot of these fish sit in the bags could be 30, 40 hours. And we know that, you know, with that type of time, there's going to be some stress on the fish. We have many different procedures in place that are going to try to cut down on any fish loss and also be able to market a good, solid quality product. So everything is brought into our holding facilities. They're acclimated. They're quarantined for five to seven days. We do many different, uh, we use many different diets on them. We run diagnostic work on them. And they're not, they're not approved to be marketed until the supervisor of that apartment uh, tags them for sale. But with bringing these different countries in, it, again, like I was saying, it brings a lot of excitement to what's on our list. And this is one of our strengths as well. And that's why our company has been in business for over 45 years. So what are some of the groups and species that are kind of hot on the, I guess, the side of being not really produced in Florida? Well, the, the, one of the biggest ones is the, uh, the fighting fish, the male betta. That is probably the biggest mover for us. We bring thousands and thousands of these fish in every week. It's uh, a big demand item. Another one is the loach, the, the clown loach out of Indonesia. Uh, great fish, spectacular fish, always a big demand for that. Uh, another ones are many different fancy guppies. The list goes on, Roy, but these are a few of these are the definitely the big sellers that we import every week on high volume numbers. So of all the fish that you farm or import, what are your favorites? Yeah, it would be really, I don't really have one particular favorite, but one that always sticks in my head that I can't ever get away from is the, is the clown loach. I've always been in love with that fish, uh, especially when they get up to five inches long. They're an amazing animal. They're just beautiful. Uh, I've always been able to to every time we got that fish in, I always want to see it. They're very active and attractive-looking fish. So I would say if there is one, it would be that one. I do also, I'm, I'm fond of the El Plicos, a lot of the more exotic Pocosimus uh, that we get out of Brazil, the Gold Nuggets, the Zebra Plicos when we are able to get them. Some of these things are extremely attractive, and, and I am fond of those as well. The Blue Eyes are no longer available, or no one's seen them in a while, right? The Blue Eye Plicos? No, right. Right. Yeah, the blue eyes were big in the 90s, and uh, I see them on the list every once in a while, Roy, but they're in, it's extremely expensive, and they're really not to, to be traded. I, I know the rivers were polluted, and a lot, of the, a lot of these fish were lost back in the 90s. So what fish would you recommend for the beginning hobbyist, and you know, which fish can you put together from your, uh, your viewpoint? Well, what I usually tell a lot of people, if, if, you wanna, if you're a, a beginner, you definitely want to start with something that's strong and hardy. You don't want to get anything too technical that you have to play with water parameters. Uh, we try to push or we try to tell people that stick with your more common tetras, your common barbs, if it's maybe a serpe tetra, a bloodfin tetra, even a head and tail light tetra, opposed from maybe getting you know, an emperor tetra that's a little bit more touchy or a penguin tetra that could be a little bit more touchy. On the barb side, you can stick with uh, beetle fishes, the uh, hyphen rosy barb, uh, the cherry barb. The males are full color red, a gorgeous fish, very hardy fish. You always want, you know, something to, you know, algae eater. A pacosimus is a hardy fish, or a Chinese algae eater is another one. So ask your local, you know, your local pet store. But if you stick along those lines and try not to start with anything too difficult, you're going to have, uh, you know, positive results. Along the same uh, kind of lines in terms of trying to keep everything as healthy as possible, I'm, I'm sure you probably emphasize water quality too. Definitely water quality. Yeah, water quality is a big part of that. So when, you, when you're looking at what you're uh, an aquarium to buy, you definitely want to look at filtration. It's, uh, it will make your life a lot simpler and make your fish much happier. 
So getting close to the end here, but how does 5D today compare as well as the industry compared to 5D in the industry 30, 40 years ago? Well, 30, 40 years ago, I remember, I mean, I was, I was quite young, but life seemed simpler. <laughs> it, it has definitely changed, you know, from one small farm. And even though my, my, my parents have worked really, really hard, I just remember things being a little bit easier. You know, again, we were just dealing with one facility. Now, you know, back, in, back then, it was basically my dad was shipping out 100 small shipping boxes. Now we're shipping out thousands of fish boxes per week. The amount of employees we had back then, it was around six employees. The company's up to 120 employees. And just the overall industry itself, in the 80s and the 90s, it was totally different. There was a lot of independent shops. There was a lot of new business. The computer age wasn't really hitting that hard. So the industry was really thriving then. Now it's definitely more challenging. Things have changed. The chains are basically driving the, the sale of the fish. The independents are having to, to fight on their own end by offering different varieties of fish and, and having their own little niche. Uh, the just whole concept of the hobby has changed. You know, I, I look at my kids. They grew up and they have you know, these game systems that we had something, you know, I look back, we didn't have anything. Or when, we, when it came out, it was an Atari. Uh, they have so <laughs> many things, you know, the technology with a phone and the tweeting and all this has affected our hobby. There's no doubt about it. But, you know, we're still strong. We're still driving. We're still trying to get the word out. And I think what brings, you know, what brings it in, Roy, is really trying to stay ahead and offering new varieties, getting the word out, just, bringing excitement, and uh, what really shows us is the, the customers that we have, our, the pet stores that we supply, the wholesalers that deals with pet stores, and then the uh, large chains. I mean, everybody has a different, you know, are able to offer different things to help, you know, uh, bring this hobby where it needs to be. I know you um, also work with some of the schools. Are you getting a lot of interest in the schools? Locally, we do. You know, we try to support these schools. We work with aquarium sites actually uh, around the nation as well. We donate a lot of fish, as well as some of the, even the aquariums. So we try to help out the best we can to keep, you know, to keep the hobby alive and strong. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. I want to thank you very much to uh, give thanks to Jason and our producer, Mark Winter, for making the show possible. Jason, did you have any final words of wisdom or information that you want to impart to our listeners? Well, I'll say this. As much as I love tropical fish, I'd like to see, you know, if everybody would spread the word, educate others. The joy of having a tank is like no other. We need to also educate and prevent of the release of fish. And if we all can work together, we'll keep this, this hobby going strong and living the dream. Thanks very much. Those are great words of wisdom. Appreciate your taking the time out to join us. Please be sure to check out Jason's web pages. The links are going to be on Aquarium Mania for this episode. I encourage all of you to visit my Aquarium Mania blog on Pet Life Radio. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at PetLifeRadio.com. If you're over in Florida, please be sure to visit the Aquarium Mania exhibit at the Florida Aquarium in Tampa, one of my favorite aquariums. So until next time, visit your local aquarium stores and keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy. And remember uh, all of the fish farmers here in Florida. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.